Hello and welcome to the FilmPulse.net podcast. This is episode number 80. My name is Adam. With me today we have Kevin. How are you, Kevin? I'm okay. Uh, today we have a great show lined up. First we'll be speaking with directors Kevin and Michael Getz on their new film Scenic Route, which is currently on VOD and hits theaters Friday. Then we'll be going over some of what we've been watching before getting Film Pulse contributor Todd Wilcox back on the show for a feature review of Kick-Ass 2. And finally, we'll be going over this week's movie predictions, new on VOD and DVD and Blu-ray releases. Uh, before we jump into this interview, I wanted to do a couple plugs, some in-house stuff, if you will. Uh-huh. Uh, we have our first video review up on the site. Uh, we've reviewed The Art of Elysium, which is a new book. And I gotta say, I didn't like Elysium very much, the movie. Mm-hmm. But the one thing that, that made me actually give it kind of a pass was that it looked so good. I mean, it was so detailed and like everything about this world is so fully realized. And <laughs> the the book really shows that off. And it's it's an awesome book. So check check out our review on that. Or maybe it showed off that they focused entirely too much on that. Well, not enough on well, everything no, that, else. <laughs> well, yeah. That, I mean, that's exactly what they did. They They didn't go into the the characters the story and, and there's so many logic problems with that now, movie. Which, now which one's that is that the tom cruise one no elysium is the, the will, matt damon. will smith oh it's not the will smith one <laughs> no it's the matt damon one yes yeah, the matt damon one. gotcha it's we, we i know do we, have, we do have to do we have any have more of this which one is which do we have any more of this coming out this year or are no. we done elysium's the best one by far though okay. like that's that's the only one that's probably even worth okay. checking out um also, we have our first video interviews coming out. Uh, Ernie sat down with um, the director of a film called Pretty Dead, and we we have some videos coming out for that too. So, first video review, first video interview. Wow. Coming out. Yeah. Exciting stuff. All right. Let's go ahead and speak with directors Kevin and Michael Getz about Scenic Route, which stars Josh Dumille and Dan Fogler. Okay, uh, thank you so much for taking some time to speak with me. Uh, I guess we can just start off pretty simply. Maybe you can tell us a little bit about Scenic Root and how you came to this project. Okay, yeah. Um, I guess it's, it all starts with Kyle Killen, the writer. Um, you know, he, he's a fantastic writer and has had, had tremendous success in the last couple of years. We actually worked with him on a script uh, called Taste of a Tuesday that um, he wrote. We got a hold of it almost eight years ago now and he hadn't had anything produced yet and he was uh we could just tell from the moment we read this script that it was amazing and a kind of a extremely unique voice and a great way of storytelling which sort of fit in line with what the get brothers what we wanted to do and so we met with kyle and we bought the script from him and we worked on it for a year or so with him and and uh we tried to get it cast and it it's actually just a, a massive movie that needed lots of money and turned out not to be the right one for us to do right off the bat so in talking with kyle he says you know i've got you know now he'd sold beaver and beaver uh was being shot and he was starting to get mm-hmm. his tv shows going and lone star was about to come out and, he's, and so he's starting to kind of rise up and other people are taking notice of how great a writer he was and he says you know what i've got this other script and i really like working with you guys i wrote this as my first script ever it's, uh, it takes place in the desert. I think we could go do this right away. If you guys are interested, we'd love to, I'd love to give it to you. And that was Scenic Root. And, and we read it, and we're like, holy shit. I mean, 
I mean, holy cow, this is a, a, a great kind of character study. And with the right performances, we think we can, we can make this into a film. Because, I mean, it felt like a play. I mean, obviously, there's so much dialogue, and it really dives deep right. into it. And that was a challenge for us, you know, and a, a little bit scary at first. Like, can we pull this off? And as we just kind of read it and reread it and reread it and talked to Kyle about it, we, we decided to, to, to go for it. And I'm glad that you mentioned the the characters and that, that this really is a character-driven film because the thing that really drew me into the film was the characters. And, and I would consider, like, the desert landscape almost a character in and of itself as well. So I was thinking maybe you could tell us, was it difficult to shoot in that kind of environment? Because on screen it really seemed like you put uh, Josh DeMille and Dan Fogler through the ringer with this. <laughs> we did. We put the entire cast and crew through the ringer, I think, including ourselves. It took us, we scattered 2,000 miles to find that location, which ultimately ended up being Death Valley, California. And uh, it was just so difficult to find a road, a paved road in America that didn't have any other sign of, of human life on it. Like, usually we'd find this great mm-hmm. road, and then we'd turn and we'd see a house, or we'd see a pole, or we'd see a, a tower. And so we finally found it way out in Death Valley. And you're right exactly about it being a, a third character, because the desert was really the antagonist in this film. I mean, they both end up going at each other, but ultimately what they're up against is, is this is this battle against Mother Nature. They run out of food and water and, and really test the limits of their survivability. And so that was really important for us to find that. And while we shot out there, it was interesting. There was no weather forecast for the exact area where we were because there was no weather station. And so we remember talking to the rangers about 60 miles out, and they said, look, when you go in there, the weather could be anything. We don't, you know, it could, it's just always changes in Death Valley. And so at you know, 10 o'clock in the morning, it would be 75, 80 degrees, and by 3 p.m., there would be a dust storm that would come in with 80-mile-per-hour winds out of nowhere. And it would just sweep us, sweep us off our feet. It was, it was, it was brilliant to shoot there, though. It was the only way we could get the movie done. You know, there's, there's a long truck scene in the middle of the film where they talk in the truck, the two characters, for a long time at night. And, and a lot of people had said beforehand, hey, why don't you shoot that on the stage? It's, it's pitch dark outside. And we said, no, you know what? We're out there. That's part of it. It's, it was in our blood. It was in the actor's blood as they shot. They could, they could feel the wind that night, you know, buffeting against the truck. And, and it just, it just lent an authenticity to the whole project for us. It was fantastic being out there. And how, how long were, were you guys out there? Pretty short. It was, it was a 14 days in the desert. The whole movie we shot in 17 days. Wow. That's pretty impressive. Yeah. Uh, so this is, this is a fairly small-scale film that really focuses on the two main characters and the incredible amount of tension between them. And that's, that's another big highlight of the film is the ridiculous amount of tension that builds as the runtime goes on. Uh, so pretty much everything was riding on the performance of the two leads. So my question is, how did you come across, how did you come to choose Josh DeMille and Dan Fogler? Because they both give stellar performances in this. Yeah, you know, uh, Josh DeMille uh, came on board first. Uh, we, Mike and I had seen him in a couple of movies, obviously the Transformers, and, and then we saw him in uh, the Catherine Heigl film. And we were both mm-hmm. we were we were on location doing a commercial, and we were both in the hotel somewhere in our own rooms. And on the, on the channel, there's only a couple of channels at this hotel, and that that movie came on. I'm blanking on the name right now, um, but uh, we texted each other. It was like, hey, what about Josh Duhamel for this? You know, and we still have that text. It's kind of funny because we didn't know much about him, and if he could pull this off. And so the script got to him, and a couple of days later, we got a call from him saying, let's meet for breakfast. I'm I'm, I'm into this. 
So we went and had a, a breakfast meeting with him in Santa Monica, and the moment we sat down with him, he was like literally rolling up his sleeves going, okay, guys, I want to dive into this. I want to rehearse. I want to mm-hmm. learn every line. I want to go out into the desert. I want to... I want, to, I want it to be like we're Hemingway with our elephant guns and go out there and just shoot this thing and live in the elements. Like, do, should we camp out there? Like, uh, I'm going to put everything into it. And his passion, was, he was like reaching across the table at us, at us with, his, with his passion. And so it was very easy for us to, to see that he could do it. And, uh, you know, we, we, we talked about cer- certain themes that we liked about it, and he was right on board with that, and he, he spoke very intelligently about it. And it, it's just, you know, in Hollywood and in, in this kind of business, you not you get pigeonholed so easily, as everyone knows. And he was looking for something totally different. And at the end of the day, it was like the absolute kind of perfect timing for everyone because he needed to do something like this. He needed to spread his wings and show that he can act. And he's got the chops. And, and this was like the very perfect movie for him because it was 180 degrees different from anything he's ever done. And so he was able mm-hmm. to just throw himself into it. And he trusted us, and we trusted him, and... You know, doing that weeks and weeks of, of rehearsal with him. I mean, he, he we went over that script with him every day for like a month of just and talking about each line and why that character would say it and what it means to them. And, and he was just so into that process that we knew we couldn't fail. And when we got up there on location, the, the very first take we did with Josh and Dan was when the truck breaks down and they kind of get out of the truck. Well, that lasted 17 and a half minutes on set before we cut. So it was almost like our own bit of theater out there in the desert. And the whole crew were, like, stunned. Like, these guys just literally pulled off 17 and a half pages without missing a line, without missing a beat. And uh, that was a real great day, too, because the whole the whole crew, who don't usually read the scripts, are just out there working very low budget in these horrible conditions, really hot, really cold, really windy, whatever it would be. And they all kind of got behind the movie after seeing that because you know, Josh and Dan put so much emphasis into it. And how we got Dan. Dan was the same way. Shortly after we met, we met Josh, we met Dan, and, and he was just as passionate about the project. And we had known about Dan since his, his role on Broadway with Spelling Bee, and he's fantastic. And, and we knew that this was you know, a world-class actor who, who really had the chops. And, and coming in, you know, he was just as enthusiastic as, as Josh and rolled up his sleeves. And so, you know, it just felt good. We, like I said, we had, we had a month of rehearsal before we shot. We actually had more time to rehearse than we had to shoot. So, you know, we laughed about it afterwards. We said, you know, let's go stay, let's go put this on stage now when we were done because the two of them could have done it easily. Completely off book. Yeah, I mean, they they were both just just standout performances for both of them, really. Um, I wanted to talk about kind of the, the interactions and the relationship between the two characters because everything felt very real and natural. And it, kind of going back to what you, you guys were saying, it seemed like it was very real natural on set as well. So uh, was this heavily scripted or was there a lot of improvisation at work? Well, that, that's the funny thing. After, after telling you how much we rehearsed for a whole month and we were off book yeah. and knew every single line, the trick then was to make it not seem like that. You know, obviously that's, that's mm-hmm. the goal and that's, you know, a lot of times, you know, in certain things we've done, we don't rehearse. You know, we, we'll just talk about what the scene is to be and let's go and you kind of get that, that feeling. But this was... With Kyle's writing, which is so unique, too. I mean, Kyle's got such an amazing way of saying things and having characters say things that most of us just think and would never say. So we wanted to stick closely to Kyle's script. And and so the, the real trick was making it not feel rehearsed. And I think part of that goes back to being in the element there. I mean, Josh and Dan drove up from Los Angeles to Death Valley. It's about a four-and-a-half-hour, five-hour drive uh, together. And they literally got lost. 
like we got a call from them. You know, we're supposed to meet that night at the hotel, and they got lost. You know, and so they they formed a friendship. Uh, we we worked together in rehearsal, and we go out to dinner afterwards. And the four of us would then stop talking about the script after we've 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 done all the lines that day, and just talk about life, and just became friends. And that translated too. I think um, that was that was key. That they really got. Yeah, to know I think other. that that really. Yeah, that really translated onto the to the screen, I think. Good. Yeah, that, that was the uh, idea. So, I don't want to spoil what actually happens, but uh, you leave the film with a fairly ambiguous ending, and general audiences tend to find ambiguity problematic for some reason or another. And I was just wondering if this was something that you guys were considering when shooting the film. Yeah, it was. It's. It's. Just even the first time when you put the script down, when you, the first time you read it, you get that kind of feeling of where you, what just happened. Uh, and we're, we certainly uh, have been in that in that situation in theaters where a movie's ended ambiguously and you kind of feel maybe let down or something. On the other hand, we knew there was no other way to end this film, um, and, and we stuck to it because with all the stuff that's brought up and and the, all the questions we pose, we 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 decided that we weren't leaving it ambiguous. We wanted to leave people with a question. I just have one other question for you, and it's, it's I'm going to throw a hypothetical at you. Let's say the two of you get stranded out in the desert under the same circumstances. How would that play out? <laughs> yes, very similar. <laughs> it would. I mean, that's what we loved about it so much. Like, we actually related so much of this film to us when we read the script the first time. You're stuck to your own devices out there. All of a sudden, everything comes up. Every issue, every skeleton in the closet, every... You just have nothing left to talk about. You start, you know, just get into it all. But, um, it's very much, I mean, the, the real theme of it, and, and it, what, is, what I think everyone can relate to, is that at some point in your life, no matter what you've done, you reach a point like this. It's almost like that midlife crisis that's happening a little bit earlier, but it's that, am I, am I what I thought I was going to be when I was in my teens? You know, like, have I reached? And, it, and it's that realization mm-hmm. that you're not. It never actually goes to plan. And I think that's true with everybody. Whether it was really bad, that it's that realization that I, I'm, I'm not what I thought I was going to be at, when I was a young person with all these great ideas. And because life gets in the way and you have to, card things like you're going to play in a band in front of a bunch of people or write your 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 great novel and that's just life but there's lots of other great things that come about having kids and and whatever whatever else kind of happens to these characters and so we would pull from those things and i I think mike and i as as brothers being out there were able to also be like this team with josh and dan and we all could relate to these things and pull from each other and and that's how i think we've got our our rounded characters great well thank you so much guys for uh taking some time to speak with us. Adam, we really appreciate it. Thank you. Thanks, man. Thanks again, guys. Be sure to check out Scenic Route on D- on VOD and in theaters Friday. Uh, would, as always, I would suggest seeing it in theaters if you can, if it's playing in your area. <clears throat> Let's go ahead and jump into some of what we've been watching. Kevin, we'll kick it off with you this week. Oh, with me? Okay. Uh, started the week out with uh, Sergio Carbucci, the old uh, director of Django. I remember when we had Ryan watch Django and we were looking through his filmography, one of the main films that sort of jumped out to me was The Great Silence, mostly because it's Klaus Kinski and Jean-Louis Chatignon versus each other in a spaghetti western, which 
sounds insane. And number two, it's all in the snow. It's set during a blizzard. Okay. So mm-hmm. Jean-Louis plays Silence, who he's a mute. So they take it to a whole nother level. The the man of few words, they he just doesn't talk at all. Completely silent throughout the film. And of course, uh <clears throat> Corbucci seems to be a master of setting up uh the enigmatic character because the way that silence comes onto the screen is just awesome. You know, there's the outlaws sort of hiding in the bushes and everything. They're getting ready to ambush him. And it's just this long sequence, you know, like a, uh, a sea of snow. And it's just this little dark speck galloping up on his horse. And he murders all of them. Hmm. Just destroys them. And then, well, the one guy, he throws down his gun. And he's like, I, I, and this is this is the best part about Spaghetti Western, like this film, is it's, it's a great movie. But at the same time, you really have to work really hard to get through um, all the terrible aspects of it. Yeah. Mean, mainly the bad dubbing, um, the awful, awful dialogue. Because like I said, the guy comes out, throws down his gun. He's like, don't shoot me. I surrender. I swear. I'm through bounty hunting. And it's just it sounds so damn terrible, all of it. And much like Django, he just, you know, he shoots off like his thumbs and a couple of his fingers. And which seems to be something that Carbucci is really into. I mean, people just, yeah, the digits get blown off left and right. And they fumble with their, with their guns. Like after he shoots this guy's fingers off, he's still trying to kill silence. He's still trying to, he's fumbling with his gun in the snow. And it's much like Django where it's not as bad as Django, but it it goes on for entirely too long. Like Mm. Django is to the point of just absolute hilarity at the end of that film, where he's fumbling with that gun for what seemed like 10 minutes. Mm-hmm. He's just trying to put it up on that cross, and he keeps dropping it and trying to pick it up. <laughs> it's, it's so hilarious. Mm-hmm. But uh, So you have to deal with that. you got to get through that. And especially the, the main person, well, there's two terrible phases. One is the mayor. Uh, like, all of his dialogue is absolutely terrible. And there's a scene where... The one bounty hunter is eating a, I think it looks like a piece of chicken, like a whole chicken. And it's so unbelievably disgusting because when they do the dubbing, you know, it's done after the fact. Right. So it's like you can hear the lips smacking and stuff. Yes. And he's, I mean, this guy's like really playing it up. Like he's a really messy eater and he's just oily fingers and just lip smacking and he's talking and blowing his nose and all that stuff. But the problem is, is everything's at the same volume level. Right. So everything that he says and all, all of like the heavy breathing, <laughs> the lip smack, everything's at the same constant level, which it re- it truly was like one of the most disgusting like food scenes I've ever seen. And I could not wait for silence to just shoot that guy in the face. Uh, the other problem is, is they incessantly tell you over and over again, like they have to essentially they take your hand and walk you through that silence always kills in self-defense, which essentially he's a dick. This is what he does. He just eggs these people on until they draw their gun and then he kills them. <laughs> <laughs> That's what he does. <laughs> but it works. But Klinsky, or Kinski doesn't fall for it. He plays a character named Loco, and which is <laughs> very apt for Klaus Kinski. And much like his name and the person that plays him, he's absolutely insane. Nice. And they square off quite nicely. Um, the opening, like I said, is amazing. It drags in the the middle areas, much like Django does, it goes on for entirely too long. Um, but the ending, the ending is, I've never seen this before. It's, it's 
so unbelievably shocking. Just the way that they do it and the way that it ends, you have to see it just for the ending. Like this is an automatic four stars or, you know, eight out of 10, just based on the ending alone. Well, don't tell me because I will watch this. I won't tell you, but not only is it shocking, but then then Carbucci has the balls to go and do it in slow motion, like close up. Hmm. And you're just like, oh my God, I can't believe you're doing this. But it's amazing. And plus, like all the landscaping is, it, it all those shots are amazing because, you know, it's a Western, but it's set in the blizzard. So it's in, it's just snow everywhere. It's great. It's sort of like a samurai film, like an old, uh, trying to think of, thinking of like uh, Sword of Doom or mm. Gyokin. Or Zatoichi, like an old. Yeah, you know, the, all those famous uh, samurai scenes in the snow and stuff, but it's a Western, again, Klaus Kinski, playing a guy named Loco. It's it's great. It's, it, I highly recommend it. Um, a film that I do not recommend, well, slightly, is Sweet sweet Backs. Let me make sure I get this right. Badass. No, bad. Badass. <laughs> ass. Five S's. Song. 1971. Uh, I always get it mixed up. It's Melvin, right? This Melvin. is Melvin. Mm-hmm. Melvin Van Peebles. I always get it mixed up with his son. Now, his son, Mario, did make a movie called Badass about mm-hmm. this film, which was pretty good. I, I'm going to have to check that out. This is, again, kudos for its place in history and what it's set out to do and all of those things. It's In that regard, it's great. But as a film, just looking at this as just a film, this is a pile of shit. It is, it's, on one hand, it's a complete unwatchable mess. And then on the other hand, it's so bad, it's good. I mean, this is like early Birdemic. Well, this, I the, mean, this is like, this is The Room, really. I think The Room is a remake of Sweet Sweetback's Badass Song. It's the same thing as Dolomite and a lot of films of, of this time. This was never a good movie. When it, even when it came out, it was never a good movie. The thing that makes this famous is, is the way in which it was made. The yeah. fact that you have a black writer, director, actor, composer, like producer, like, I mean, this was like independent filmmaking, like at its yeah. But this finest. has been no, this has been done before. Cassavetes did this. Give me a break. No, Cassavetes did this. But yes, I'm, he did. I'm saying by an African American, this was not. This was extremely unusual. That's why this movie was so big at the at the. You know, this was a huge midnight movie. Uh, yeah, I think it, I don't think it was because of necessarily the way that it was made i think it was what was in the film is that this was probably the first time that they actually went after the white man like it was in his face going right at him yeah because i mean i mean the opening closing credits are fantastic I, I love that absolutely love it you know i've seen this movie probably two or three times and i couldn't tell you anything that happens in it <laughs> um honestly he just he runs he runs constantly like that's all he does He's just running, and I, I I get, you know, the implications of that and what they're trying to say, the subtext of it, but to do it for, like, 60, 70 minutes, uh, um, no. Like, yeah. I, got, I got it after, like, the first 15, and it just I, keeps going on and on and on, and it's just him in his velour jumpsuit with his pirate shirt running. I wouldn't say that I'm an expert in 
black exploitation films, but I've seen a fair number of them. And this was this has always been the lowest on my list. I always liked Coffee so much better than this. Well, this is actually this is the one that started it. Well, I and think this that, is, that, that this is could, because it, it, he he made money off of this film, and he was could, able to do it without the the studio system whatsoever. So the studio system scrambled together and they're like oh my god we can do this we can use you know all black production and we can make money off of these films so that's what the studio started doing yeah well you do have shaft which came out the same the same year and i think that between the two of them because shaft was a studio film um but it was uh it wasn't held in the same regard as sweet sweet backs because of the you know independent style yeah. of, of sweet sweet back and the fact that it was an all-black crew and and a black director i don't know i don't think shaft had a black director but i could be wrong about that but i think it was those two that came out in 71 oh, that were just i, I have to say i mean there was some good points in this film that you were like oh shit that was that was really nicely done the way that he did that you know the the whole scene of him uh beating the cops unconscious with the handcuffs well, yeah, they just, you know, fan people just had the camera just slowly, slowly zooming in on his hand and how it, you know, just kept getting more and more blood on it. And it's like absolute black, like pitch black background. Um, I thought that that was great. There was surprisingly a lot of um, like avant-garde type things that I, it sort of took me by surprise. Um, when they uh, light the cop car on fire, I thought that that was great, the way that that was handled. And... The scene where he goes back to Beetle, which is was essentially like his pimp, or he owned that club where he did his uh, like sex performances or whatever, which is also hilarious. That he's great at sex and everything, and he doesn't move; he just lays there. <laughs> he doesn't move at all. Oh, he's more worried about taking his hat off and putting it back on than he is actually having sex. But when he goes back to Beetle's house or whatever it is. Beetle like hops out of the shower, puts his towel on, and like I, he gives this <laughs> elaborate dialogue to Sweetback, and I understood almost none of it, other than he kept saying that Sweetback looked good like over and over again, which was really odd. Um, I don't know where he just sits down and takes the shit, <laughs> and then he gets back up, doesn't doesn't wash his hands either, and starts like rubbing his face and his eyeballs, which was disgusting, and then. <laughs> He's just, you know, he's telling him, like, Beatles, your man, you dig? Dig, you just got to lay low. And he just said that over and over again for, like, one minute. And they just kept cutting to Sweetback, who just has dead eyes. Just no look at all on his face. Just staring at him. And then he leaves. <laughs> it's like, you got to be kidding me. <laughs> I think that maybe Sweet Sweetback, and there's a lot of other films that do this, where you have the one that starts it, and then it gradually gets perfected you know like well, other people end up doing it better that's what i'm saying like i i understand its importance in its place in cinema history like it, it, he pretty much gave uh young black directors a blueprint or and also at the same time inspiration that yes you can do this you can make your own film on your own with the black community and it can actually be financially viable you can make money from this and it will be talked about so like i get that and I can appreciate it on that end. But like just looking at it as a film, it's, like I said, it's teetering in between unwatchable mess and it's so bad it's good. Yeah. 
I, I still think you should see Dolomite. If you really want to see some so bad, it's good. There's there's a lot of other really big films of that subgenre that I haven't seen, like Superfly and yeah. Uh, there there's a just a ton. But the the other thing that really got me was that Earth, Wind, and Fire does the 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 soundtrack for the film, and this is before Earth, Wind, and Fire were you know big before they made it. Um, they essentially just did the soundtrack for this film for food, and they play one song over and over and over again just oh my god it was driving me crazy was it the earth wind and fire song or was it the shaft theme song by melvin van peebles i think it was the earth wind and fire song because there is because i think that melvin van peebles did a song too that maybe it was maybe it was him was this one oh god yes (laughs) it was that one so is that Melvin? Yeah, that's the Melvin one. Oh my god. Yeah, that plays, that honestly plays like over, I want to say like 60. Oh fuck, <laughs> turn it <laughs> on, dude. <laughs> oh god. And there's even times where he messes up like the audio and he like lays another track on top of it and it sounds ter- oh god, that fucking song. One it, honest, sh- it plays over 60% of the film's proceedings. I'm not kidding you. I'll tell you one you should see. Uh, it's The Harder They Come with Jimmy Cliff. No, I actually I do want to see that. That's one that you should definitely check out. That was... Uh, I, I was surprised. That was uh, one of the, an example of a movie's soundtrack that became bigger than the film itself. <laughs> the other, I just remembered it. Uh, because Beatles, like the, one of the greatest characters ever from this movie and in all cinema ever. <laughs> <laughs> so when the cops come at the beginning and you're like, you know, we did, there's a dead black guy. We need to bring someone in. You know, it's just we're just doing it to save face. So he's like, all right, you can take Sweetback. Sweetback comes out, and of course he's just standing there with a dead look on his face. And Beatles like, you're gonna go with these guys for the night, all right? See you tomorrow. Bye. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, God. Uh, it's good for some laughs. Uh, one that's not good for laughs is Inshallah. Like that segue? Yeah, well, I was I was kind of wondering how you are going <laughs> to do in that one. Yeah, there's no laughs in this movie. Didn't look no, like there'd be. No, there's. this is devoid of all laughter. This is a film that uh, takes a look at sort of like an outsider's view into the ongoing situation between Palestine and Israel sort of set at the West Bank barrier. And outside of being a Canadian doctor, female doctor who works at a maternity clinic, um, she works on the Palestinian side and resides in the Israeli side. So she resides in comfort and has to work in these, you know, dangerous situations. She spends a good amount of time with uh, a young Palestinian woman who's expecting her second uh, child. And it's, like, I can appreciate how they went about it. It was the film came off very non-judgmental, and it was really through the eyes of the character Chloe, who you know the young Canadian doctor, and I liked that they were able to do that. Uh, you know what I mean? That they were able mm-hmm. to sort of not choose sides here, and you're just looking at it from the perspective of the doctor, who does choose the Palestinian side. But it once you see everything that transpires throughout the film, you sort of understand why she picks the Palestinian side because that's the only side that she's seeing. You know, all the heart-wrenching stuff is right. coming from the Palestinian side. and She has an emotional investment on that side. So it 
makes sense. But the film does towards the end make some giant leaps, uh, development wise that just were really like, what are you serious? You're going to jump that far, that, that big of a leap. There was, it, it sort of lost me a little bit. Like it got too illogical for me. Like it was pretty restrained the entire time throughout the film. And, you know, it was a nice character study and the person dealing with these situations. But the giant leaps that they made at the end was like took me out of the film a good bit, which I don't I don't want to end it you know I don't want to uh, ruin it for you right. But well, this is uh, playing in limited release right now. I, I mean it's a it's an alright film. It's decent. It's a well made. Um, nothing to write home about really though. You know nothing that jumps out of you and you're like holy shit that was amazing. It's just you know serviceable. Performances, decent enough cinematography, decent enough story. You'll forget about it. I'll forget about it in like two weeks. <laughs> You'll forget I'm not, about it. I'm not, not going to. When we're talking about the films of 2013 at the end of the year, I'm not going to remember Inshallah. Mm. No, no offense to Inshallah and the people that put all their work into it, but I'm not going to remember it. Well, Sorry. Okay, well, one one movie that I'll remember. That was your last movie? I know I do have one other oh, one. Okay. I, I actually finished right before we started recording, and that was Tokyo Drifter from 1966, the jazz Yakuza <laughs> Seijun Suzuki directed. I was I was pumped up for this, and I'm going to use a pun. I was jazzed for it. Oh boy! Yeah, that's right. Going puns today, buddy. And this film really let me down. I was I was thoroughly let down. Yeah, I mean it was it was. It was pretty good, but it man, it really drags in the middle. A, a Yakuza guy and his boss, they try and go straight. They own this building. They owe money to another crime family. So they set up a deal that they're going to pay it back. But another crime family comes in and steals the building right out from under them. Hmm. Yeah. Can you believe that shit? So now the, the guy's trying to go straight and who's the main character is Tetsu the Phoenix. He's a Phoenix, dude. You'll knock him down three times, but he's going to rise up like a phoenix. Mm. Kick your ass. That's mm. how he gets the name, all right? So he decides that he's going to take care of business. But at the same time, he wants to stay straight. He doesn't want to be a gangster anymore. So he comes to the conclusion that he's just going to leave. He's going to become a drifter. So he changes his name to Tetsu the Tokyo Drifter. and just goes out drifting, I guess, or broming, whatever the hell you want to call it. Um and it's sort of this, uh, he's stuck between, he's he's still extremely old-fashioned where he has a sense of duty and honor and loyalty and all that, all those things. But um, you can tell that it's quickly becoming the American, or not American, Americanized, Westernized, whatever, uh, modernized Japan. So he's, he's sort of fighting back the, between those two aspects. And like I said, it's just... It just dragged on a little bit, which is tough to say because it's only 82 minutes long. I did, I'm not saying that it was completely terrible. There was a lot of good stuff in it. The the whole it opens in black and white, and I mean stark, stark contrast, black and white, and that's that whole opening scene is fantastic. And then it cuts to color, and you know there's some decent shots here and there, and the performances are pretty good. They're pretty solid, but the ending is. Is unbelievable the set piece that they use and just people getting shot left and right and just the way that if you haven't seen any of these Japanese new wave uh, gangster films 
the way that they shoot their guns, it's amazing. <laughs> like they have to pose when they shoot. They don't just shoot. They like slide into their shot. And the guy's like rolling around on the ground. It's it was quite entertaining. It wasn't jazzy enough for me though. Like I thought this was gonna be like a really cool, slick gangster film. Like Cowboy Bebop. Yeah, I thought it was gonna be just like a fun, fun time, just entertainment like for miles, just jazzy, awesome coolness. And it wasn't. It was a bummer. But it was it's still I still recommend it. I give it like say like a Maybe like a seven. Hmm, okay. Still a solid film. Uh, well, I had a really light week. I only saw a, couple, a few things. Uh, but I did start the week off with seeing Francis Ha, Noah Baumbach's latest. Mm, uh, and did you hear the news about that? No. That's coming out on Criterion. Oh, really? Mm-hmm. Oh, In uh, November. That's awesome. Yeah. Well, uh, fortunately, uh, one of the little theaters around my area got it, so I was able to see it at the theater. And uh, I loved it. I mean, it was. It, this will m- most certainly be on my top ten of the year. <sighs> it was just, and you probably won't like it, just like you probably won't like Before Midnight. But I mean, this was. Right I'm up. actually. For the, I'm excited for this. It's just a fun. It's a very light film. I mean, it, it is a comedy, and it doesn't get real serious or anything like Bombax previous films like the squid and the whale and and greenberg those would be considered i would consider them more like dramedies Mm -hmm. you know there there were quite a few dramatic elements but in this one it was they he kept everything fairly light i mean obviously there are conflicts in the film but almost everything is is just very very breezy and and kind of just fun and greta gerwig is fantastic in this movie and just her her personality, I mean, it just makes you smile, you know, like she's just such a fun loving just person. And, um, it was, it was a really smart movie. It was, it was smartly written. And with movies like this, sometimes they tend to be overwritten, but mm-hmm. I didn't, I didn't really feel that with this. I loved the black and white. That was a very good choice to go with the black and white. And it, it takes place mostly in Brooklyn, but it, it, she goes all over the place and the way that it's broken up is interesting. It's each section is a different place that she lives because Mm -hmm. she's kind of the whole movie is just like her kind of finding herself and finding her place and where she wants to be and what she wants to do. So like each section of the film is her in a different apartment or house. And that's (laughs) like what the the title card is the address of the house in each section. Gotcha. Which I liked and it's, it's really good. Uh, I can't recommend it enough, actually. Yeah, I'm pretty excited. I wish it uh, came around here. Didn't. But at least now I know that all I have to do is wait until November. Yeah. And it'll be out on Criterion. It'll probably be out before then, I'm sure, on demand. Because usually they come out. The, the, the turnover's pretty quickly, pretty quick on those now. I really I, like that's pretty much the only one that's even worth talking about. I, saw, I noticed. I, I noticed. I looked at your diary here. Yeah, I just had. It's a, just. It's all downhill from here. Yeah, I just had like such a pointless week. Really, <laughs> I've been watching a lot of the NTSF SD SUV on Adult Swim. So. Uh, well, that's the problem I had too. I got bad, the the uh, on Netflix the 
last season or whatever of Breaking Bad has come out, so I've been watching that, getting mm. myself, getting getting hooked back into that sucker. Uh, I saw House Two: The Second Story, which oh, yeah. I, I saw House One a few, a few months ago, and I saw <laughs> that you thought, why not? I saw Let's that House do this Two. Again. This is a boredom watch. This is like while I'm working, and uh, the funny thing is that it stars. Uh, the guy that played Adam from the show Ellen. Nice. It, star- it stars co-stars Cliff from Cheers. Nice. And it and it also co-stars Bill Maher. Bill Maher is in this. Yep. That is fantastic. It really has nothing to do with the first house. Uh, it I don't, I don't even know what the hell's going on in this movie. It's much more family friendly. It's just kind of this goofy adventure story where they find out that their ha- this house is a portal to an alternate universe where there's like temples and caves and dinosaurs it's so ridiculous i didn't know there's pterodactyls in this oh yeah there's pterodactyls there's a huge scene involving a pterodactyl stealing this crystal skull that they need to get for whatever reason and they're chasing this baby pterodactyl around the house, and it's just so wacky. <laughs> and there's also cowboys in it. It's out of control. It's pretty bad. It's pretty bad, but it's not as bad as Sleepaway Camp 4, The Survivor. Now, so I watched... four Sleepaway Camps. Yes. But there's actually five. Oh. I watched uh, the Sleepaway Camp series because... I was writing about the first one for my Grindhouse Weekly article. Mm-hmm. And a lot of times near the end of those articles, I like to talk about the sequels that came out and if they're any mm-hmm. good. And I saw the first three Sleepaway Camp movies and then the latest one uh, a while ago. So mm. I rewatched them this week just to refresh myself. And the, the first Sleepaway Camp is still great. It's still worth checking out if for no other reason the end of the film the last the last scene the last shot still creeps me out to this day like it gives me chills every time i see it it's funny because it's it's kind of just a b horror movie i mean it's your classic 80s summer camp slasher but this end scene man it is just so shocking and the trick is you you can't do any reading on it. You need to go into it cold, not knowing how it ends. Because gotcha. you will be, you'll just be like, holy shit, when you see it. It's it's so worth checking out just for that. However, the sequels were all very, very poorly made. Uh, they replaced they replaced the main character of, of Angela with Bruce Springsteen's sister, <laughs> who played Angela in parts two and three, and... The fourth one was never finished. So they started shooting the fourth one in 92, but they didn't finish it. Then in 2012, they put something together and released it on DVD. And it is the worst piece of shit I think I've ever seen in my entire life. All it is, is clips from the previous three movies. Okay. It's completely nonsensical like i couldn't even why didn't they why didn't they just start over why didn't they just like get just i don't understand any of that well yeah which is even 
okay, so this was going to come out in 92, but something happened. It fell through. They only had like maybe five minutes of footage, five to ten minutes of footage. That's it. And it was really bad. Like there was no color correction or sound editing, sound mixing or anything done. And so they abandoned that. And then in 2008, they came out with Return to Sleepaway Camp, which was a completely different movie. And then in 2012, they revisit part four and re-release that. And it's, it's, yeah, I mean, they, this is a perfect example of just running, running a series into the ground hard. And why? Like, there's no way they made money off of this. No, no way. Absolutely but, uh, not. I think I'm saying you got, like you said, five, five to ten minutes. Yeah. Just scrap it and start over. Yeah, I don't understand. And what they did was, I don't know if you remember, but I had a box set for the Sleepaway Camp movies. I, I do remember that. It was that. the. It looked like the first aid kit. Yes. Okay. Yeah. And I wish I would have kept that. I sold it, but it's that thing's worth some serious money right now. Oh. But uh, in that. They had a bonus DVD that came with it that had the footage, but it wasn't a full movie. But since then, they just threw in all these other clips, and the it's so fucked up. Like the aspect ratio is different on the clips. the The quality is different. I mean, it's just it's so bad. I can't even describe how terrible this is. But so that's that's really all I all I got. So uh, that's all you got? Are you kidding me? Yeah, I mean, kick ass too. That's pretty much it. I had a light week. That's a sad week. I didn't. I just. So didn't, I feel. I feel bad for you. Yeah, I just didn't really have anything to watch. Was, oh, I'm, so, I'm sorry. Oh, yeah. there was something else that I wanted to mention real quick. Talking about something, not having something to watch, and this is something that we sort of plays into what we talked about last time on the show, which is Martin Scorsese, right? And we know that he has the World Cinema Foundation. They are, for the first time, there are selections from Martin Scorsese's World Cinema Foundation that are going to be presented through Criterion on Hulu. And you don't need Hulu Plus for this. This is, they're going there for free. It's part of uh, Criterion's 101 Days of Summer series where, you know, they do sort of like a movie-esque type deal where they put right. they put up one film every day. Um I think as of right now, there's like three films up there. Um, one is the original The Housemaid from uh, South Korea, which was remade, um, I think, like two or three years ago. Um, there's Senegal, Tukibuki, and I forget what the other... I think it's a Turkish movie is the other one that's up right now. But essentially, uh, Scorsese has the World Cinema Foundation. He takes films from uh, sort of... Uh, less developed countries that have these important films, but they don't have the money to restore them or care for them correctly. So he essentially has this foundation where he does it for them. So he takes all these important films from all over the countries and takes care of them for them. Hmm. So he's pretty much criterion, but his own version. And that's why we love Marty Scorsese. Yeah, because he's amazing. So those, I mean... Apparently, there's a bunch more that are going to be coming out. There's going to be uh, another Turkish film, one from Morocco, India, Bangladesh, Kazakhstan, Mexico. I don't think I've ever seen a Kazakhstan film. Mm, no. S- someone up. 
Freaking check that off my bucket list. I think the only one I've seen is Borat. Does that count? <laughs> Just kidding. <laughs> Uh, well, did you see the trailer for um, Bad Grandpa yet? No, I did not. I gotta say, it, it made me laugh. I've seen it a oh. couple times now. When I went to see Kick-Ass, they, they had a trailer for it, and it made me laugh. I'll admit that. Uh-uh. I think it might might be pretty funny. Okay, let's talk about Kick-Ass to Todd Wilcox. Thanks for joining us once again for another review. It's my pleasure. Uh, this is written and directed by Jeff Wadlow, co-written by Mark Miller, who did the comic book. Uh, the synopsis says, The costumed high school hero Kick-Ass joins with a group of normal citizens who have been inspired to fight crime in costume. Meanwhile, the Red Mist plots an act of revenge that will affect everyone Kick-Ass knows. This stars Aaron Taylor Johnson, Chloe Grace Moretz, Morris Chestnut is in it. Am I missing anybody? Oh, my goodness. It's a big cast. Christopher Mintz-Plass. A Clark Duke, who I like a lot, yeah. is in it. Did we say Jim Carrey? Uh, Jim Carrey, of course. You have the review up on the site. So normally, we start with the person that didn't write the review. But in this case, <laughs> I want to I start with you. Because you gave it a one and a half out of ten. So I want to start with that. So maybe you can get we can get your initial thoughts here. It was you know I don't want to use um, hated it, disgusted by it, all that. But I think I used somewhere in there disappointed, and that was that was really it. The score kept going down the more I wrote about it and thought about it because I well it happens with almost every sequel. You're obviously comparing it to your memory of the original, um, the, your, your first introduction to these characters. And I was just uh, befuddled as to the what I found was this complete disconnect between the rather uh, fascinating, almost charming, even though it had a lot of violence, the original Kick-Ass, but sort of a charming film with this, whatever this was, which was just a, just a bunch of crap thrown in. Um, <laughs> Sometimes literally. Yes, a lot of crap. Well, not thrown in, but thrown out. It was just the most uh, I, oh, awful. It was just awful. Well, I, I didn't like it. Let me throw that but, out there. I did not like this movie, but... I was a little more forgiving, I think, than you were. I, I was a big fan of the first one. I liked the first one a lot. And I know a lot of people, it, it seems like the first one kind of divided critics. Some people really liked it and thought it was kind of uh, kind of a unique take on the superhero film. And some people just didn't like it because of surface level things, you know, the violence, the, the kind of kitschiness of it. But I actually liked the first one quite a bit and i thought that with this one it was like they left all the surface level stuff in there you know the the violence the 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 how it's a little girl but she's swearing and she's really violent and killing mm. people and stuff they left all that in but they took out anything of substance that was contained in the first film absolutely but that being said 
Uh, I, I did read, I read a few reviews on this, and it seems like people are really coming out against this movie for being excessively violent, being sexist. Uh, one reviewer said it was a fascist movie. Mm. Um, it, like, and to me, that that seems a little ridiculous. Like, I was expecting it, I read probably two or three reviews before going into this, and I was expecting it to be this over-the-top, ridiculous bloodbath. And yes, it was violent, sure, but I it wasn't anything I didn't expect. Uh, there were other elements that I didn't expect that I was not pleased with, uh, mainly the, uh, the vomiting and the diarrhea, um, because a little fact about me is I hate vomiting in movies. <laughs> I just, I cannot stand it. And in this movie, it was done so poorly and for no real reason. Like, it was just the cheapest of cheap gags. Mm. And to me, that that's where the big problem of this film lies. It's just, it's all over the place, right. tonally. Like, it, th- they try to make it serious. Like, they have these sincere moments to it where... And it's impossible to take it seriously because... You just saw the scene before it, somebody getting hit with a gun that makes them shit their pants. Yes. Yeah. And that was like the big, one of the big problems I had with it is it was just all over the place. I mean, how am I supposed to take this, this movie seriously when all this shit is happening? They're playing like the Tetris soundtrack and like, if you're going to make it over the top, make it over the top, but don't, don't try to be something that you're not. That's why I I think. I'm not looking at the review, but I think I used the word rudderless, that it was like a a ship that didn't know where the hell it was going. Um, As you say, it was was just all over the place. And I I was particularly, you're talking about this um, with uh, uh, Mindy, Hit Girl, Um, that whole, and I know I talk about it in the review, that that whole storyline of her... And uh, the girls at school, who she makes vomit and have explosive diarrhea and so forth, that that whole thing was just un- unexcusable as a what, what was it there? I don't understand what it was there for. Not just the the gross part of that, where you suddenly were in a, a fairly brothers, you know, kind of, but yeah, the whole thing about her fitting in with these girls and do it made no, no sense at, at, at all. And in fact, um, the other thing that you mentioned, I think is absolutely true is that what you said, but if it's going to be over the top, that's great. But then somehow Wadlow tries to bring in the sincere moments that basically is the group that gets around Jim Carrey's character uh, with the two, and I didn't go into all of those um, superheroes because I just, I didn't see the need. But the, the two parents who lost their kid and yeah. and then, you know, and they're trying to find him. And, and then the, 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 um, the gay um, guy who's tired of being in the closet. And there was all these sort of really and then the the, the girl that uh, who, whose daughter and not daughter whose sister was murdered sister and found in mm-hmm. a dumpster um you know that they all had these incredible stories 
but but then everything around them was absurd and ridiculous yeah and and see that's the that's the big the big thing with this movie right the first one was supposed to be superheroes in a real world mm-hmm. setting like these are normal people doing these things they're getting hurt they're getting injured the violence feels very real and then in this movie everything is so blown out of proportion that it's like we're not watching a movie where this is the real world we're watching it in a comic book world right. now and in, and unfortunately not a very good comic book world <laughs> i actually read the kickass I, I read i read the kickass 2 comic book and i i stopped after i think issue 3 or 4 because i just wasn't into it i just was not interested by these characters i didn't i just didn't really care about it and going back to what you were saying about the the whole mindy mm. plot line that was in the comic books as well and i understand what they were going for they were trying to show the fact that she was making an effort to be a, a regular mm. girl she was really trying to put forth the effort and it just wasn't working and you know she it's a she's learning to be true to herself and that that she really is hit girl and this is what she needs to do but was it necessary to go through all of that stuff with uh like her getting in with the popular crowd and being betrayed by them like come on like we've seen that all before and i think it would have been so much first it was just entirely too long like that whole subplot Mm. was entirely too long they should have knocked that down a little bit and like quickly had the girls betray her and then she like beats the shit out of them or something you know i i would argue that it just should have not been there at all because it it makes no sense compared to the uh to, to the original kick ass uh you know when you watched her as hit girl did did any of us ever uh, uh doubt that she knew who she was I mean, you know, what I mean? she she was a self-assured person with Nicolas Cage as as Big Daddy as her father. She was she was self-assured, and then suddenly, two years later, at, when she's when she's fifteen, now she doesn't know who she is, and she's trying to find herself. And suddenly, she's uh, trying to do what. Uh, and Morris Chestnut's character, the detective who's now her guardian, she she's trying to please him and and be normal. Uh, that the the disconnect between that and who she was in the first movie just I mean made made no no sense to me at, at all. Yeah, and and that's that's a flaw in the comic book. That's because that is that is a big portion of the comic book. It's almost like it's two separate stories that mm-hmm. are happening. Um, sticking with the whole Mindy character, I wasn't bothered by the excessive violence. Um, I, I, a lot of people are talking about the, um, the attempted rape Mm. scene as well as, as being entirely too over the top. And I, I didn't like that scene. I thought that it was again, completely unnecessary. And it seemed like it was just trying to, um, go over the line just for the sake of, you know, crossing the line. Like, I, I just thought it was completely unnecessary. But uh, the thing that kind of made me feel weird was the, like, overly sexualization of Mindy's character. Yes. Like, 
it, it really bothered me to know that these girls in this movie are like they're supposed to be 15 and they're they, you know there's all this stuff and they're talking about like getting wet and stuff and i was just like oh yeah ew. like that that kind of made me feel a little uncomfortable uh, especially because I was seeing this in a theater by myself, and I was just like, "Oh man, I feel like a sleaze ball." <laughs> Absolutely, and and uh, and and I I mentioned that uh, this whole thing about she she watches the the boy band video and yeah, that was so and ridiculous. she gets um, she has basically a sexual whatever, and um uh, and and, there, and uh, no reason I mean no reason for it. There was no, yeah, Nothing there was no real... or after had anything to do with Yeah, that, that didn't go yeah. anywhere. It, it, it wasn't like a story of her coming into womanhood or anything yeah. like that. Like, they, they do not explore it any more than what, what that one scene, essentially. Which, again, that, like, that whole thing was entirely too long and completely ridiculous and unnecessary. Like, I just didn't even understand why that... It felt like a commercial for that boy band. <laughs> yeah, which I think is actually a real boy band. Yeah, they're real. That's a real yeah. boy band. I didn't know that either until I read one of the reviews. It is. Um, that's that's a big problem. I mean, what I started the review by mentioning that what you talked about that there there was this critic among critics a um, a, a pretty big divide about the the first film and. And some of that was really aimed at uh, Mindy and, and Chloe at uh, plays her. Um, not, of course, anything to do with with sex, but to do with all with the violence and um, mm-hmm. and and the foul language. Yes. She was she had a and real foul potty mouth in the yeah. first one, and the fact that her father is encouraging all of this and so forth. Mm-hmm. But but at least all of all of that. What the reason that it didn't bother me was that it fit into the narrative. It was her narrative. It made perfect sense that that's the way she was given her father and so forth. And then here, it yeah, you know, like I mean, we don't need to beat this over, but it just here I was uh, the critics that uh, that I read afterwards that I after I wrote it uh, spoke a, a lot about her sexualization and and it's almost exploitive of yeah. of of her um she I, I don't know she's she's not a she's she's a pretty accomplished actress for a young girl uh you yeah, know you definitely you see the remake of um of the vampire dark shadows no no well she was no. sort of sexualized in that too but the 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 one with the, the swedish let the right one in oh let me yeah. in yeah, great vampire movie, and then they did "Let Me In," the Americanized version where she played the vampire, and she's you know she she can be really great. She can be a really sincere and and, and moving actress. And if she had just stayed true to who she was in the first film and just carried that over into this film, I I think we would be looking at this very differently. Um, well, I, I think that, that that just goes to show you what an impact she actually had on this film. I mean, she was the most endearing character. She was the one... I mean, she's the focal point. It's called Kick-Ass, but really it should just be called Hit-Girl because mm-hmm. she's, she's the main part of, of this movie as well as the first one. She, she was the highlight. 
And uh, I want to talk about Jim Carrey's character mm. as Colonel Stars and Stripes. First of all, he's not in it that much. And like, I, I don't want, I think that his, like him coming out against the film and saying he wasn't going to promote it or support it or whatever, like that's fine. That's his prerogative, right. I, I don't think. But his character is so minuscule in, in the, the grand scope of this movie. I'm not going to say like what happens, but he, he's not in it that much. No. We'll just put it that way. And I thought that he, like they, they're really playing up his character, but he has so little to do with this movie that it just, it seems insignificant. And, uh, well, yeah, I don't want to. I don't want to give anything away either. But he's just he. He's sort of. Um, to me, he was more of a prop than a character. Yeah, it seemed like uh, they they were like, okay, well, N- Nicholas Cage obviously won't be in this for reasons that happened in the first one, mm-hmm. and we need we need somebody else. We need we need somebody else to put in the in the foreground here. Let's and then you know they go with Jim Carrey, but. I feel like his his character just seems pretty pretty small, a, a very small portion of what's in this movie. Well, in in some ways, they're all, uh, with, with the exception of of Hit Girl, um, are all rather <laughs> they're all rather small in a way. Um, it, in my view, in the sense that the, there's there's too many. First of all, that this the, the cast is too big, and yeah, it's too big, and you can't quite focus on any anyone. Uh, the first film was much smaller in scale and much more character driven. Well, and again, it's a movie called Kick Ass, right. and the first one was about Aaron Taylor Johnson's character mm-hmm. deciding to become a superhero, and you know that that journey and what happened to him. And this one, there's like 50 characters. It's like X-Men 3 or something where they just try to cram in all these different characters. And then like they also added in this other like plot line with their friend Todd, which (laughs) the whole time I'm just like, what is why? Why is this happening? Uh, Like, what's what's the point of this? There was no. Oh, there was no point. Uh, I mean, there's something that happens that Todd like is a part of but that was just such a throwaway thing like it it seemed pointless to devote that much time to this todd character when really he was just there for one small plot point Mm -hmm. and i and we we haven't uh talked about and and uh i don't think we're giving i don't think this would be giving anything away I, i know that again in the review, which I hope people will read and understand why I I gave it a a one and a half is uh you know Chris Vince Plus is was uh, really quite vital to the first film in a very unique way, and here he is this master villain. He's you know the evil that all the superheroes are banning together. Um, to, to 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 fight, and he's creating this, uh, amassing this army, and again, as we mentioned, how many, as you said, how many characters can we cram in into one film? And 
I, I just, you know, I, I liked, I liked Red Mist in the <laughs> when he was Red Mist in the first film because he was a, as I think I said, he's a com- complex character that actually drove the story uh, with his connection with uh, Aaron, Aaron Taylor Johnson with Kickass, and here he is a ludicrous, uh, you know, just. I don't even know what to call him. He's just the well. We need we need a bad guy, so here he is. Yeah, it was it was pretty ridiculous. I thought pretty much all the characters felt pretty empty. Like they just didn't they just didn't do anything. They didn't do anything with anybody. No. And and like you said, like the the character of Red Mist or the motherfucker yeah. is he is a complex character, and they could have done so much more with him, like. Because in the first one, it was it was like he was trying to be good, but he has his family was in in the mafia, mm-hmm. and he was really struggling with that and and all this stuff. And it, it's like all that all that like conflict gets thrown away in this one, and he's just evil, and for no real apparent reason. I mean, that uh, Wadlow gives us the reason that it's because Kickass blew up his father with a bazooka in the first film but mm-hmm. but that that's just it <laughs> i mean that's sort of mentioned and then that has nothing to do with him ever again as the villain um you don't get the sense that it's about any kind of deep-seated revenge that you might see in a well-crafted character-driven film it's just yeah. well again we just need a bad guy and we'll um, we'll use him because he was in the first film and we're just bringing we're just carrying over everybody that we can from the first film and um, and none of them were used none of them were used in the right way none of them were used appropriately none of them were used to their best capacity I I just don't I just don't get it I, they, they had such a solid base from which to work from the first film and I just again I thought they just blew it with every every single character they blew it again uh, I think that a lot of that falls on the shoulders of the comic book Mm. the second comic book Um, I do want to get into a spoiler section because there are a couple spoiler type things that I want to discuss but I also wanted to ask you before we get into that what you thought of the the fight scenes because that was really one of the highlights of the first one was the kind of stylized, really good choreographed fight scenes mm-hmm. in the first ones. The just overly violent, over the top, really fun. Um, what did you think of the fights, the fight scenes in this one? Yeah, and I, in the in the review, I know, um, or at least uh, I hope I'm not imagining that I wrote this. I think I talked about the great <laughs> stunt work that was done. Um, the, the the imaginative fight scenes that I I didn't see anything that even remotely came close to the choreographed fight scenes of the first film. Um, it it was all. I mean, I'm really trying to search for one that that really worked. It was all very. It was stuff stuff we had seen before in a way. Yeah, um, I agree. I think that. There, there wasn't a whole lot of action in this one. I mean, maybe I'm wrong, but it seemed like the first one had more action in it. And the the action that we did see in this one, I thought, was 
pretty pretty lame. I mean, it was pretty mediocre. The the first big action scene that I remember when the team busts into that mob bosses or or not I don't know if they're I think they were somehow affiliated with the mob, that poker game. Oh yeah, that was running the the girls. Yeah, that like that scene near the beginning uh, I was I was into that. I was like, all right, cool. Like we're we're getting somewhere here, and I I liked that scene. I liked how the team was working together and helping each other out and that type of thing. But really, I thought that that was the only effective scene. Even the big battle at the end, I thought was pretty lame. It looked like it looked like a big battle in Braveheart or something, you know, <laughs> where it was like two giant armies, and it was just a a, a mass of people and fists and bats being thrown and and they focused on a couple different one-on-one fights but i wasn't really impressed by any of them and i thought that the the fight involving hit girl was going to be really cool but i was even disappointed in in that especially what happens at the end i thought was really ridiculous but i agree with you about the uh, the, the the scene where they do break in to the to the poker game, as you said, the this is when the um, uh, the the group of superheroes are working together. It's it's done it's done effectively. It's very well so filmed, put together, and and that's pretty pretty early comparatively in, in the film. And then and I thought, oh okay. But then it just every everything after that just got worse. It just got more lame, more predictable, more. And then the melee, was, as you mentioned at the end, look to me it was it looked more like a food fight. Yeah. Uh, you know, it was like you just should have given them mashed potatoes and let them toss those at each other because there's there's no way you could you could put all of that together i mean they needed they needed freaking peter jackson and and uh <laughs> you know orcs and elves and things um to, to pull that i don't know it, it, yeah it was just ridiculous and i don't understand why and i know i keep going back to it but it, again that's what happens in the comic book but i don't understand why in this one in the movie they couldn't just use the core team of good guys versus the core team of bad guys. Mm -hmm. And then rather than showing just a mass of like chaos happening, why they couldn't show specific one-on-one fights, you know, like uh, kick-ass versus the motherfucker hit girl versus the Russian, Mm -hmm. and then have them be like, you know, like Clark Duke's, character versus whatever the equivalent is probably the short guy right that's on the bad guy team and why they couldn't just show that why does it have to be this huge mess of you know costumed people fighting each other i just didn't think that that worked at all i was really disappointed with that and certainly by that point of course because we're in the last 15 20 minutes that's that that should be the climactic (laughs) Um, moment and in kick in kick ass the, the first one as you said it was um you know it was it was awesome that that was when hit girl and kick ass went like into the uh like the mafia building right and right. fought all those guys right to to go that after, was amazing uh 
Chris, I mean, Red Mist, go, to go after his dad. Mm-hmm. And they had to fight their way through. Um, and it was brilliantly done. It was so, it was, again, you use the term again, it was so well choreographed and so, um, what's the word there? It was, it, it was so, it was so adept, adeptly done. And then, um, and it was sort of, there was one-on-one, there was one-on-two, two-on-three, you know, but it was all very limited and kind of realistic versus what we're talking about here. Right. I mean, the, what we saw, where, it was cartoonish. I mean, it yeah, was, yeah. it was just, it, it was ridiculous. And that's, that's the big problem with this movie. I mean, it's just, it's not effective. Like, Maybe it was Matthew Vaughn that was able to make these better fight scenes, but it was just so much more effective in the first one. Just the style of everything. In this one, yeah, it was brutal at times, but I don't think that any of it worked on any level. But I I wanted, we will get into spoilers, but I wanted to ask about what your thoughts were on the level of violence. Did you think it was excessive? compared to the first one or just on its own just as a whole just uh, as a whole um just as a movie did you in a movie violence too excessive there were there were certain scenes that i felt excessive i i the um the russian and the police officers to me felt excessive uh but but i i'm not i don't know that i would ever use the term excessive and violence about a film because uh, it, if it's done well, excessive violence can be exciting and interesting and, yeah, you know, you just imagine like first, just like the first kick-ass. Yeah. Or, or imagine the, um, the you know, the, the fight scene, uh, the, the various uh, battle fight scenes in, uh, in 300 mm-hmm. between, you know, the Spartans and, and the, per- the Persians. Um, you know, it it can be done well. I don't. A lot of people and, and critics talk about well, the violence was excessive. Well, I don't know that there's anything really that, to me, is 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 excessive violence or unnecessary violence. But there is a level of violence, or a, a, a not a level. There's a presentation of violence that is so sort of absurdist that it it doesn't. It, it 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 doesn't capture your imagination. It just it just make just tur- it turns me off. And really, that Russian woman going through the various police officers mm-hmm. that that to me was just a, a a poor execution of violence, a poor use. Well, of, uh, of violence. yeah, I, I I see what you're saying. I I think that critics are being very harsh on this film, and and to me. I don't think there is a such thing as excessive violence in a movie, especially a movie called Kick-Ass, right. for God's sake. Right. I mean, it's supposed to be excessively violent. That's the whole point. If you went into Kick-Ass 2 and it was rated PG-13 and there was no blood and no violence, people would hate it even more than they do now. Right. Uh, and so I think that it's ridiculous to criticize the film on its level of violence. That being said, I think that there are movies that use uh, extreme or ultra violence in 
ways that negatively impact it. And the example that I'm thinking of uh, would be Gangster Squad. Uh, did you see Gangster Squad? Um, no, I, I didn't see. Well, in Gangster Squad, it's, uh, you know, your pretty typical action movie. But at the same time, there's these scenes in, in the movie that are so over-the-top, gory, bloody, violent that it doesn't fit. It doesn't fit with the rest of the movie. Mm-hmm. So when they do it, when they do that, then that kind of pulls me out of it. And I'm like, oh, whoa, like this is kind of jarring. Mm-hmm. But in a movie like Kick-Ass or Kick-Ass 2, it, you expect the violence. You you want the violence. You go there to see the violence. Mm-hmm. So to be like, well, th- that was just that was just excessive. <laughs> like, fuck you. No, it's not excessive. There's a like, what did what did you expect? Maybe there's a, a fine line. I, I know what you're talking about. These these some, some of the reviews and maybe it sounds like we've read actually some of the same ones, but the the idea of excessive versus unnecessary or oh, what's the word I'm looking for? But it's, it's kind of the gangster quad the gangster squad um, example that you're using, and I'm thinking of maybe a different film too, where the violence is. I don't understand why that happened. At what was the point of that particular violent scene? So there's sort of like a. I agree. There's no such thing as excessive violence, but there is such a thing as why violence of that nature at that moment in that film. No, yeah, in that the, context. That's, <laughs> right. That's exact. Yeah, that's yeah. exactly what I was saying right. with with the whole gangster squad thing, where it just doesn't fit and it feels out of place. Like, but in a movie like Kick Ass too, I'm sorry, but you you can't you sh- you can't criticize a movie like this on its violence and and. I'm not saying it's a good movie. I didn't like the movie, and and I don't think that it is a good movie, but a lot of people seem to be criticizing it for things that I don't think it should be criticized for. Like mm-hmm. again, what the what do you expect from <laughs> from this movie? Like I I think that like for instance a, a movie like Machete. Let's right. just use Machete as an example. There's a scene where Machete cuts someone open and uses their intestines to swing, to jump out of a window and swing to a lower floor. When that movie came out, and, and plus, there is a ton of exploitive things with, with women and just overall craziness in that movie, but you didn't see that movie being criticized for its use of violence or it, it, its stance towards women. And I don't think, going along with Kick-Ass too, I don't think that either of those movies should be judged because of those things in the film. Like, judge Kick-Ass 2 because it's a shitty movie. Yeah. You know? I think that there's so much more wrong with it than just its stance towards women, which I don't think is good. Don't get me wrong. I don't I don't want to see a, a 15-year-old... or actresses who are portrayed as 15-year-old girls, you know, being that sexual in a movie. I don't want to see that. Mm-hmm. But... At the same time, I think that it's unfair to criticize it when it's supposed to be like that. Yeah, it is. And I, I don't know. I don't think that anywhere uh, I, I criticized it for its violence. Um, I, it, it's, it's sort of everything. It's sort of everything else. Um, and, and even, even if you do, if you, even if you and I, and I, we've already done it, I think 
criticize some of the violence, it's not the violence itself that we're critical of. It's the execution of the violence. Right. Yeah. yeah. I mean, there, there, there are certain movies where it's like, okay. Uh, the other thing that, that bothered me about this movie and the violence was the, I thought, overuse of CG blood, which anytime I see CG blood in a movie, I'm like, all right, that's like at least one point knocked off <laughs> right there. I don't think there's any need for CG blood. I mean, they didn't, there wasn't an overuse of it, but no, but they did use it quite a bit. Yeah. And I, that always bothers me because I think CG blood looks like garbage. You can tell right away that that is not real. And how hard is it? You know, they've been doing blood in movies for decades, <laughs> decades and decades. Yeah. Just create to me, that. To me, it's just lazy. Create that blood and put it in that little pack and then yeah. you shoot and the blood comes out and, you know. Yeah. We know the uh, let's, let's go ahead and talk about some spoilers. So we are in a spoiler section now. I'll have the time code in the show notes. So if you haven't seen the movie, you can fast forward through this. Uh, the first thing, before I forget, one of the things that I thought of while we were talking earlier, I wanted to talk about the scene with Christopher Mintz-Plasse and when he goes to visit his uncle in prison and they kill John Leguizamo mm-hmm. while, while he's there. I don't understand the significance of that, right? Because he says as he's leaving, he's like, that's, what, that's all I needed to know and all this stuff. But it's like... What what changed him about that? You know, I thought, I thought, okay, well, he's gonna kill all the mob people and take over or something, and then and still go after Kickass. But it's like, what what about that scene and that event changed him in any way? How did it change him? It had no connection to anything. This was, in a way, kind of uh, to me, it was kind of like. Uh, Mindy's little trip through popular high school land, it was a little moment of uh, that that went nowhere. I mean, just... I just... Yeah, I just... I didn't... The whole time I'm thinking, where, where are they going to... Are they going to come back to that? Because there are so many things that happen in the beginning of this movie that they call back on, like the needle and like mm-hmm. so many little things that they throw in that are so obvious and you're just like okay well clearly they're going to come back to that mm-hmm. and then they obviously then they do like that felt really weird to me like the scene where he just a random scene they show where he's like picking up the needle and he's like what's this like <laughs> that stuff bothered me because it was so in your face and obvious like this is okay foreshadowing here foreshadowing here it's for when you're in real trouble. For when, yeah, yeah, she tells and that me. and that whole thing, that whole like adrenaline shot yeah. thing, I, I I couldn't get on board with that either. No, like where she all of a sudden gets actual superpowers. <laughs> right. The the, the slow, adrenaline. like sure. I mean, sure, it looked cool, like the scene where she's grabbing all the glass out of the air. But give me a break, you know. And, and this is. This is a movie where the director and Mark Miller are coming out and saying it's not a movie that glorifies violence. It's a movie that's supposed to be real and show you what would happen if this were real and blah, blah, blah. But that's not what's happening here. 
No. In real life, you could inject yourself with adrenaline and pick pieces of glass out of the air as they were falling and stab them into someone. Sorry. And stab them into someone who uh, <laughs> we had already seen sort of almost the, you know, the, the mother Russia has a body that I, I'm not really sure you could quite puncture some parts of her <laughs> with pieces well, of glass. Um, I don't understand why they couldn't just like do away with the whole adrenaline needle thing unnecessary and then just have her be because i thought at first it was really cool she's like picking up pieces of broken glass and stabbing her, stabbing her multiple times and stuff i thought that that was really cool it looked it looked cool and it was i've never seen that before in a movie where she's just you know shuffling around the ground picking up shards of glass but then mm-hmm. they had to go and fuck it up with the whole adrenaline shot thing right but yeah I, I, yeah that was just there's every, a lot everything. of that. There's a, it's a lot of that that happens through the whole movie. I mean, there's a lot of WTF moments where you just say, "What? I don't. What was that for? What was the point of that? What? I don't get. I don't understand that." Um, I just I, it, this movie has such a different feel than the first one too. Like. Because I'm thinking back to the first one, and there were sincere moments in the first one. It wasn't all fun and games, mm-hmm. but they did it in a way where when a sincere moment happened, you didn't feel like laughing. Like, it felt like an actual sincere moment. You cared about the characters. Uh, you were empathetic towards the characters. But in this one, every time that they would try to bring it down to a serious level... It was almost laughable because you're like, this is so ridiculous. You know, that the music was bad during those scenes and it was just pathetic, really. That whole, one of the things that I uh, really just, that that just was just ridiculous was, of course, when, you know, the police are rounding up the the good guys. Oh, yeah. Um, and Kick-Ass's father... They, they they find the kick-ass costume and he says he's kick-ass which uh, which was so stupid because anyone from well let's say the first film because this is still the same world this is still the same universe should have known that there was no way that this man was kick-ass but anyway uh and then he, he you know gives himself you know gives himself up and he says i'm kick-ass he gets into prison and then they kill him Mm-hmm. in a rather gruesome way and then cut to the funeral and uh did 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 I feel anything about that did I feel any kind of sympathy empathy no i was just completely this is ridiculous and as soon as you know you think that at at, at a funeral where all of his friends have shown up and and Mindy's there, and the rest right. of the group is there. And then very quickly, it turns into a bloodbath when... Crazy smoke bomb battle. Right. When, yeah, yeah, yeah. When, when uh, you know, all the, the bad guys show up, and it, and it turns into... I mean, it's, it's, like, it's like you said. Anytime that they got anywhere near anything remotely sincere, it, it was gone within seconds. And 
Right. And it was replaced like, with a 180-degree turn to something absurdist, ridiculous, and unnecessary, and unbelievable and unrealistic. Um, the only The only scene that I actually felt like that was real in, in a real moment was the scene when they text messaged him the picture of his dad. Like to me, his reaction and just that scene in general with, with him and uh, Clark Duke, I thought was that worked for me, but uh, it was so, that moment was so fleeting. I mean, it was 10 seconds. I was about to say 10 seconds and he drops the phone slow motion and Clark picks it up and sees this and, I think I think more than anything that scene worked for me. Just Aaron Taylor Johnson's the reaction that he had mm-hmm. towards it. I thought because I think he's a good actor and I think he has some abilities, but he along with everybody else in this movie was completely wasted. Mm-hmm. I, I've seen him in other um, in other films, and he he's quite um, he's quite good, and he can be quite versatile too. I don't know if you saw Savages, but. Unfortunately, I hated Savage. Yeah, well, so. I didn't like it either. But you, you couldn't even tell it was him in that movie, though. No, but which I'm, was... I mean, that's what I'm saying. He he's yeah, a quite yeah. versatile actor. Um, and in the in the original Kickass, he has a number of moments in, in which your your heart sort of goes out to him, and you he wears his heart on his sleeve, and he's a very and and here, like you said, it's it's just wasted. Any anything that's even remotely um, again empathetic, sympathetic, etc., sincere is is just gone within a matter of seconds and replaced by again not excessive violence, but just why violence right now? That's well. I think that the there's a serious lack of any kind of character development in this in this film, like. Just because these characters and their backstories have been introduced in the first one, that doesn't mean that we no longer have to do anything with the characters other than have them fight each other. You know, like there needs there needs to be something there. Like the fact that in the first one he had like one of his big things was, you know, he liked this girl and he wanted to get this girlfriend and then Mm -hmm. he gets the girl. And then in this one. She dumps him at it, like in the in like the second scene of the movie. So it's like, okay, well, that was for nothing. Like, what's the, so that so that whole thing is gone. And then to make matters worse, they have the big kiss at the end <sighs> between the two of uh, between him and Hit Girl. And then I was like, are you kidding me? And I, I knew that they were going to go there with it. Mm-hmm. They were setting it up through the whole movie. And the whole and the whole time, I'm like, okay, it's inappropriate, but it's also ridiculous and unnecessary, and it shouldn't be happening. And and it was, um, you know, I, I when I saw that, I thought, well, what what kind of kiss was that exactly? Uh, it was it a romantic kiss? Was it a platonic kiss? Was it just a moment of yeah. physical connection they didn't have before? I mean, they didn't. It didn't have it. It didn't have any resonance to it. It was just sort of, all right. Well, here's a kiss. I'm leaving. Bye. Yeah. And then she's gone. And I, I didn't get the feeling that that there was anything between them. No, there shouldn't be. 
Well, no, I mean, no, is he, he's whatever, what, 17 or 18 and she's 15. But uh, th there's that issue. But even even then. Right. right. What, I, what I mean is I don't mean the age oh, difference. Mean I mean, okay. there should there shouldn't be as in the story doesn't call for it. Like if there's supposed to be a team, there shouldn't be any kind of romantic entanglement there. Like mm. they're they're supposed to be platonic. Right. They should be. And they had always been that way. And so the the kiss uh, at the end, as you said, just uh, just some sort of empty gesture that that they built up to to have that happen for for what for what reason? And and I you know that's why you know I made this point about I almost walked out of it. I don't know when that was exactly that I felt that, but I had a lot of these moments where I just thought, what I don't understand the point of X, Y, or Z. I just don't get where any of that is, yeah. is going. And the moment you thought it was going maybe somewhere, then suddenly, nope, brick wall comes down and we're on to something completely different. Yeah, like the whole her going out on a date and being tricked and yeah. that, like that whole thing was so... I mean, come on. Like, we haven't seen that in every 80s teen movie. Like, come here, we're going to see it whenever Carrie comes out in a couple months with this with Chloe Grace Moretz yeah. it's just going to be the same thing which I oh. which I uh uh th this is uh to my own horn that uh, Carrie is mentioned in my review <laughs> in my review yeah I mean come on just that that whole thing now what did you think of the death of the motherfucker well you saw that coming uh way 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 ahead of time as soon as they created well you, you knew somebody was getting dumped into that shark tank with the shark that's supposedly dead uh, well of course you knew it wasn't well, of course it's not. they wouldn't have spent they wouldn't have spent nearly that much time talking about it if that were the case and um i knew it had to be him because who else could it be and um it it seems to me that in the if if something similar to that had happened in the first film, the way that the first film was structured, and 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 if they had done something like that and it fit into the into the structure of that first film, it, it would have been great. You know, we would have been that's a great moment. That's a great that's a great mm -hmm. scene. Here it was just eh, well anyway. Yeah, he's dead now. That's and it. That's it. I, I still prefer the ending of the first one with the be, being shot out of a out of the building on a rocket and exploded. Yeah, that was great. I I, I prefer that, but um, yeah, I didn't really, I didn't think. What, what did you think about you know the the last ditch effort for Kickass to grab him and and try to save him? No, um, again, did not have any connection to the hour and 40 minutes that had come before so well especially because from the beginning i'm pretty sure when they, when they decided to go after him i'm pretty sure he said he was going to kill him yes like pretty sure that kick-ass said i'm gonna kill him <laughs> like and like what else were they gonna do like uh, i mean i guess arrest i try to arrest him but mm. pretty sure he was trying to kill him but in the first film uh, there would have, there was the uh, the gray 
uh, sort of gray area of of uh, red mist and and uh, that we mentioned a little bit earlier about the two of them hanging out and that kind of thing. And so you would have you would have imagined that he would have tried to actually have saved him. And here, him grabbing hold of him. First of all, how many how many movies have we seen that done in? <laughs> Uh, Countless. Where the where the good guy, right? The good guy, the good conscience, the good. He's no, he's gonna hang on. He's gonna try to, you know. And, and of course, he's of course he's going to fall. And um, if you I, I if you watch that really carefully, Kickass does not let go of him. Um, no, he, he actually just slips. So in the end, you know, he falls in. He's eaten by the shark. And then the group of superheroes get, you know, jo- they join Kick-Ass on the roof and have their little oh, God. powwow moment. Yeah, that was horrible. <laughs> it was like, I mean, it, it was like, the, again, all of the sincerity of these people and what they are meant to do and what they're trying to make. I think, I again, I, I keep trying to, I'm sorry, the review that I wrote is just in my head. That to, to make the world a better place. Well, that that was not making the world a better place, all of that that happened. Uh, well, they said several times in the film that they're the reason that this this group exists. They're the reason for all of this happening in the first place. <laughs> right. But also, g- going back to Christopher Mintz Plus uh, falling into the, the shark tank, he tries to it, it seems uncharacteristic for him to willingly be dropped into a shark tank like he try he knocks uh his hand free from kick ass he he hits his hand and then as he's falling he realized what he did mm-hmm. but it it seems to me like that type of character would never once be like you know dr- go ahead and drop me and I'll live on forever. Like that just doesn't seem like that character would ever say something like that. He is way too self-absorbed to think that. Well, he, he almost um, makes himself out to be the, uh, the villain that uh, people will, will remember and talk about. And uh, I don't know. I don't remember the exact quote, but there's sort of a, you know, I'll live on forever, and yeah, I'll... and I don't, I don't, I just don't see that character saying that or thinking that. Well, no, no, I, I could see sort of maybe his father having that kind of right. Uh, yeah. You know what I mean? But not, not this, not no, not this. right, or the uncle even, or the uncle the guy from yeah, the... guy from Game of Thrones, <laughs> right? Um, in which he's great in that, but. The, no, it, it may, but again, see, this is this is not just a problem with um, uh, with uh, what's his name again, <laughs> with, with Chris. It it's a problem with right. all the characters. They just seem to be out of character. Yeah, most of the film, they're out of character. Yep. All right, let's go ahead and get out of the spoiler section. Mm-hmm. Did you have any final spoiler type things? Um, no, at the very end. Uh, but I don't think that it's really a spoiler because I, I mean I put it in the review and I don't put spoilers in the review. But it it, it clearly looks like they want to make a a third 
Yeah, with the helmet, with the helmet, and everything. Um, I, I, I don't, I don't really know that that that's a spoiler. That's exactly. not gonna. I don't think that's. Uh, well, I don't think it's really a spoiler, but I also don't think it's gonna happen. I, I, I guess it. De- I guess it depends on how the box office turns out. No, I don't. I don't think there's a. I don't think there's another spoiler. I think we really talk about everyone who who dies and how they die. And uh, well, we didn't talk about Jim Carrey dying, but I don't think there's much to it. I mean, he gets killed. <laughs> like the, oh, that's the one. That's the other thing. How did they know? How did the villains know where their secret base was? Because they made a point to saying that it that he made this renovation like off code or whatever, whatever he said that they did to, to keep it a secret. So how did they find out where the secret base was? I have no idea. Because they just show up there. They do show like, up. And there's no, I don't remember there being any, uh, um, e- well, no, there's certainly no explicit explanation for why, how they find out. But I don't remember there being even any implicit uh, suggestion as to how they might have found that particular no they just show up location There's, which is which is ridiculous considering that they spend i mean there's several lines spent on t- telling telling us that this is a secret base this is their secret base in the basement of this building that he owns and blah 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 like so how did they find out like that, that's ridiculous <laughs> That doesn't make any sense at all. It's a it's a pretty big. It may be um, for all of the holes that exist in this film, and to to whatever degree we can call it a plot. Um, <laughs> I, I think it's a rather plotless film, but whatever plot exists, I don't think it's a smart film no, at all. But it's, like I think I don't think that it has any of the intelligence that the first one had. I think that it's such a dumbed down version and and like i mean at least when kick-ass and hit girl and the and the superhero army found uh the bait the villains base at least they told us or showed us how they came about finding that you know by interrogating the one guy that they caught like okay that's it that it makes sense mm-hmm. but with the villains finding their base, there was just, there was no reason. Right when they walked in, I was like, how the hell did they find it? No, they, I don't remember. If there was any, if there was anything there, it, it, um, I didn't see it. I didn't catch it. I, I don't know how they, how they arrived there. But, I mean, that's just, and that's just like one of the things that is completely, you know, that doesn't work. There's no explanation. Like, there's many things in this movie that don't seem to make any sense whatsoever. Like, for instance, did when he went to visit his uncle, did his uncle know ahead of time that he was going to kill John Leguizamo? Was that something that they planned? <laughs> it's It seemed to be... Because he doesn't tell any... Because the uncle doesn't say, okay, go ahead, or anything like that. Like, So they must have planned to kill him from the beginning, but why would they do that? <laughs> It's just, it's just it a big question mark there, Adam. I don't know. <laughs> and, uh, and it it was, of course, all to, um, to to make the point that you may you may have uh, inherited all of this money and so forth, but I'm really the one that he makes this point right about he can still call shots from inside. Um, 
the jail. Yeah, but I want to. Yeah, but I want to know how he called that shot when they're sitting there across from each other. Like it, it, he must have planned to kill John Leguizamo before they even got there. Well, he had to, and he had to have known that, of course, that John would be there. John's character would be there, and would be driving him, and would, you know. He- it also seems like a pretty big thing to like, to, as a message, you know, like. But that that I didn't find any of that stuff to work at all. I didn't understand it. And then it happens. Like, why couldn't as we said? It happens. He kills him. He sends the message, and then we never see that. And then they make a whole big to do about Christopher Mintz Plus being like, "That's all I needed to know. You just, you know, answered my questions." And blah blah blah. Like, okay, so what? <laughs> what are you gonna What are you gonna do? Are you gonna kill your uncle now? No. Are you gonna k- try to take over the mob family? No. <laughs> like, you're gonna do the exact same thing you would have anyway. It's just, ah, oh, God. I don't know. All right, unless let's get... unless uh, the uncle is somehow part of, <laughs> is somehow going to be the uh, the villain in Kick-Ass 3 if it happens. I don't know. Who cares? All right. Let's get out of the spoiler section. We are back. Uh, I don't think I have really anything else to add. Um, any final thoughts on Kick-Ass 2? Oh, no, just terrible. It was terrible. I mean, most most sequels, not well. Can we say most? Most sequels generally are uh, unnecessary, unwise, um, problematic, and and certainly you have the uh, exceptions to the rule, like Aliens and Terminator Two and Empire Strikes Back and so forth. Uh, what was sure. you know was so disappointing about this film was just how, even though people were divided about the first one, I, I liked it, you liked it, there was there was so much uh, uh, depth, really, in, in the first one. And I, f- I thought there was even more. To, uh, they could have gone even deeper, and instead they, they make a sequel in which they go broader and so broad that they lose, I think Wadlow loses all sight of what made the first one interesting, fascinating, creative, unique. He just loses all perspective and, and he creates, it's not really, it's not so much a sequel as it is, as as it is like a, a a completely different film that doesn't seem to have any real, connection to the first one except that people look the same and <laughs> they they're the same, same characters in the same outfits yeah. but what what else i don't understand there's no other connection and if you're going to make a sequel because uh, i think people were uh, you know i don't know what you think about this but th- this was something that that people who liked the first one were pretty excited about seeing what i was but i was apprehensive what they yeah what they were gonna do, and um, maybe if Matthew Vaughn had been in charge and had the reins, we might have gotten something a, a little a little different. But sadly, well, we, we ended up with. I, I think the thing to learn here is they 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 wrote the second. Mark Miller wrote the second comic book. 
because of the first movie. Mm-hmm. Because they they knew that they were going to make they had a hit and they wanted a sequel. So they wrote the sequel and I think that that indicated a, the initial problem and then Matthew Vaughn drops out and then you get the guy who directed Cry Wolf and Never Back Down to co-write and direct it. So there you have it. I mean, his his resume is quite thin. Um, you you know the um, you you just mentioned this this thing about the um, creating the sequel and it, it being the first one being so successful, and we've seen that how many times where you do make something and it is a hit. And so what do you, what must happen? Well, we must do it again. Um, right. And, and unfortunately sometimes you just should know when to, what's the <laughs> Kenny rock, know when to hold them. No, no one to fold them. <laughs> I mean, well, just, I mean, that's, that's the nature of the sequel. Yeah. You know, you, you, you have a hit, you look at, Pretty much any movie that has had a even modest return on on its first installment, mm-hmm. and you're almost guaranteed a sequel. You have Jaws. You have every single horror movie ever made, right. pretty much. Right. I mean, it's just, and then you, and then what you do is you just keep making them until you stop making money altogether, and then you just abandon the franchise, and that's how that's how it goes. And it, and of course it's a great difference between you mentioned Jaws that all, all of those horrific Psycho movies, um, all all the Saw movies. Um, yeah, I mean all, the, yeah. the first one, interesting, unique, strange, whatever. Why do we need all all the paranormal activity? Um, I mean it, it's just you you have this great initial film like you said, and and the return is there, the Hangover. You know, th- that kind of mm-hmm. thing. I was really impressed. I mean, this is kind of tangential, but I, w- I was reading a piece about Bridesmaids, you know, the, the great, very mm-hmm. funny, I thought, film uh, that Kristen Wiig uh, co-wrote. And and there's all there was all this pressure on her to do another one because it was so successful. And she's saying, but we did it and it was a one-time thing. And what what are we going to do? marry every one of those bridesmaids who wasn't married before and film it um i mean you you know there's just you you've got to know when to say no and unfortunately in hollywood they just yeah i don't think if it's in the studio system i don't think that they really know how to say no they just look at the numbers and Especially on movies like like uh, like Bridesmaids and like the Saw movies and Paranormal Activity, mm-hmm. because there's so little invested in those movies. They cost not nearly as much as the big giant blockbusters, mm-hmm. and they get a huge return. I mean, you look at Paranormal Activity; the first right. one was made for like twenty grand, and it grossed like I don't I don't probably completely wrong, but I'm going to say like. A hundred million dollars or something yeah, it was like huge, yeah, yeah, it was huge. So of course you're gonna just keep making them, and I think with Paranormal Activity, at least the first two sequels, uh, they kind of worked for me. But were they necessary? I don't know. I got. I don't know if I could say that. No, but the first one was so good and so unique and 
uh, even for found footage, which we had seen before, it, it somehow managed to still be creative and and imaginative and and different. And then and then it just it it just becomes. Oh, they run it into the ground. Run it they into run it into the yeah. and and they're still doing it. And uh, I think next year, not this year, but next year, there's going to be two of them that come out in the same year. Are you kidding me? <laughs> Well, they do it, like you said, with horror movies, and you I know you know so much more about horror movies than I do, but uh, you, you know you you just uh, the Exorcist, how many of those they made um, and and we, we mentioned Psycho, which is not exactly a horror movie, quite exactly. Yeah, uh, and then I'd call it a horror movie, but well, yeah, I mean not, Exorcist, yeah, Poltergeist, Poltergeist. Uh, all the slasher movies. I mean, just this week I watched um, the sleepaway camp series and there was four or five there's five of those uh, like there's just so many there's like uh want to say 12 jason movies uh, yes some yes. So, some somewhere around there including the remake and freddy versus jason i think it's like 12 and all the nightmare on elm street and mm-hmm. um and then and then you know the ring the ring two grudge grudge two and it, well, those are and those are the U.S. ones. And the Ring actually has many sequels in Japan. Mm-hmm. There's a lot of them in Japan. There's at least four or five of them. And and then you know what what'll happen is you'll have the first one will be a breakout, like it'll be huge. The second one they'll get they'll get a cheaper director. Nobody from the original cast wants to be in it. Mm-hmm. it it's not anywhere close to being as original or unique uh, as as the first one and it, it won't do very good. And then the third one will come out. That'll do a little bit worse. The fourth one will come out and they put that in select cities. So it doesn't get a wide release. Right. That does worse. And then eventually you just have straight to DVD. Yeah. Direct to the, and then, yeah. And then that's how it is. But in, and just to go, just, to, I mean, and we're at the end, I, I know of this, but just go back to, to kick ass. As you mentioned, the, you, know, you have the initial, uh, film and then people don't want to be in in the sequel. And here you had everyone, um, almost everyone, returning. I know Todd was played by a different character because Evan Peters was doing American Horror Story and and couldn't come back and return. But yeah, but, and X Men too. Uh, yeah, and, the, the new X Men. That's right. Well, I guess I guess the new X Men is not that that probably wasn't filming at the that point never mind yeah i think it was the horror story that was the, the yeah i think so too scheduling wise but you know but but pretty much everyone you know, returns and so in that case you really it you really don't have any <laughs> you can't really blame the fact that you don't have your cast you you do have your cast you just have a ridiculous script and yeah. a comic uh, again. book yeah. that shouldn't have been created, uh, the second one, and and a director that was way, way, way out of his depth. Um, and what do you end up with? You end up with uh, a 1.5 out of 10. What you end up with. <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to give it, since we're talking scores, I'm going to give it a 3 out of 10. So think i did like it a little bit more than you but i would say overall it's a big failure and this is going to definitely go on my most disappointed list of the year yes that's for sure absolutely so 
All right. Well, I think that that wraps it up. I would say don't bother going to see Kick-Ass 2, unfortunately. Mm-mm. Pains me to say it. Very sad. Yep. All right. Thank you very much, Todd, for uh, coming back on the show. Absolutely. I'm always happy to do it. Glad to talk to you. Take care. We'll do it again some other uh, some other time soon. Let's go ahead and talk about predictions. Last yeah. week, Kick-Ass 2, I said 68, you said 74, actual 28, ouch. Jobs, mm-hmm. I said 40, you said 38, actual 25, ouch. Mm-hmm. Paranoia, this is the best one. I mean, studios are just putting out quality. Oh, quality. I said 32, you said 30, actual 4. Uh. <laughs> I always I had, feel, I had a feel that this was going to be... Oh, well, actually. yeah, we knew it was going to be bad, but man, four? I love it when they're, when they're like, low single-digit numbers like that, because it's just, it's almost funnier than if it was a zero. And, I, and like always, I have to check real quick who was the one guy or woman. Oh, Scott Weinberg from Geek Nation. Not an original, not an original bone in its body, but there's always something to be said for a great cast. That yeah. is hardly. <laughs> First of all, that's hardly a fresh score. And secondly, what, what are you talking about? A great cast. It was a pretty average cast to me. Uh, and then it's not that hard to get people together. Yeah. And w- w- what's so great about that cast? Harrison Ford. When was the last time he made something good? Star Amber, Wars. Amber Heard. <laughs> Oh, God. I like Amber Heard, but I'm not going to say that uh, that makes a star-studded movie because she's in it. But even then, even if it is a star-studded movie, how's how's that just an automatic positive? Yeah. Hey, they were good once. Not in this movie. but <laughs> They were in, like, one good movie. Well, other, that, that makes the other, cast great. Other things they were good in. Not this one. Uh, and then finally, Lee Daniels, the butler. 82 i said 82 you said 80 actual 73 i think i i think i tore you apart uh yeah you did you you tore me you you fucking swept me on that one nice next week we have the mortal instruments city of bones Ooh, city of bones (laughs) oh i just uh, i just realized something we forgot to talk about the the author of ender's game um why him being awesome? <laughs> I didn't know that he was that idiotic. Oh, you so started. He... Well, he started popping up everywhere, and I was like, "Who is this guy?" And then it was like the author of Ender's Game. I'm like, "Oh my god, yes!" Yeah, I love it. He's kind of a dingleberry. <laughs> uh, back to the mortal. Yeah, what are you thinking? What, what are you is thinking? This? Is? The mortal What's instruments, this? city of bones. <laughs> Right, city of bones. Oh God! They just never end. These young adult novel adaptations never end. I know. And you know, there's another one coming out too called Vampire Academy. I saw, I saw that one. And isn't there's another one coming too? I forget what the hell it's called. Something. Who the fuck knows? Uh, Oh, oh, um, here we go. What? What is it? uh, I thought I remembered. It's called like. Divergent or something? Is that what you're thinking of? Maybe. That's one of them. I don't know. They all have ridiculous titles that make me fall asleep. Mortal Instruments, I'm going to say like a 22. I'm going to say 20. Mm, I hope that one ends up being like a 6. Well, I don't know. looks pretty bad. It's it's got a great cast. 
<laughs> yeah, it's this kind of... time there's something to be said for the big cast. Instant positive. Uh, all right, The World's End. This is the Edgar Wright film. I'm, I'm really, at this point, I think that this could be my favorite film of the summer just because everything else was so bad and so disappointing. So I'm going to I'm going to shoot high on this and I'm going to say like 89, 89. I'm going to go like an 84. And I hate And it is crazy to think that like every single studio movie this year has been fucking terrible. Yeah, everything's been garbage. I just I hope they I hope that they destroy them and they just crumble and they don't exist anymore. That'd be great. Well, that's what, uh, you know. This is kind of old news by now, but that's what Steven Spielberg and George Lucas were talking about. A while back, they were saying that basically the studio system is is imploding. Yeah, it's great. I love it. Uh, then we have your next. What are you thinking on your next? I'm thinking 72. This has been, I mean, since since this came out or started screening years ago, uh, there have been a lot of reviews already posted on this, and people mm-hmm. are are pretty overwhelmingly positive with this one. So I'm gonna say I like think, a 74. And I'm thinking that that's a, that's what's gonna hurt them a little bit here. Could be. There's been, there's been so much hype that you know there's gonna be people out there that are just gonna that it's not gonna live up to that hype. Yeah. And plus, I mean, it just doesn't have that great cast. Not like no. Paranoia or anything like that. Not like Ender's Game. <sighs> Fuck no. You kidding me? Uh, and then finally, we have. The Frozen Ground, which I didn't think that this was even getting a wide release, but according to Rotten Tomatoes, it does say wide release, so we can go ahead and predict no, it. It's, um, it's not, no one's going to... I'm not going to see this anywhere close to me. I haven't even seen a trailer for this. No. I, I know nothing about it, but it does star John <clears throat> Cusack and Nicolas Cage, I believe, right? And 50 Cent. Okay, well... And Vanessa Hudgens. In that case, I'm going to... St- Wait, did you? Yeah, I'll predict 12. 12? It's directed by Scott Walker. That doesn't seem right. But um, I'm going to go... So you're saying 12. I'm saying like 9. <laughs> okay. I'm going to go 9. And then in limited release, we have Joe Swanberg's Drinking Buddies, which uh, we both saw and liked. We have The Grand Master, Wong Kar Wai's story of uh, Yip Man. I can't, I can't wait to see that. It looks so good. I heard pretty bad things about it. Really? Yep. Hmm. So I don't. I don't know. I mean, it does look very, very visual, very stylized. Yeah. I'll check it out. Uh, sure. Short, short term twelve. Which, if uh, that was another piece of in-house business that I wanted to mention, and I completely forgot, but we had a chance to interview Brie Larson and John Gallagher, the stars of Short Term Twelve. Nice. And that that interview is up on the site, so I've been hearing great things about this movie. I'm pretty excited to see it. And scenic route, or route. What do you say? Do you say route or route? I, or I have no idea. Yeah, I think I do switch it up. I think that's one of those words that I switch up. Yeah, I switch it up too because I never know. Dep- it depends on my mood. And then we have paradise faith which is the second in the paradise trilogy i think in la both of them are opening paradise faith and paradise hope but i'm not sure and then finally devil's pass which is a found footage horror film by and stop right there don't say any (laughs) more never should be discussed ever again there is one other film that i was i was interested in a couple years back una noche which is apparently finally coming out. 
Hmm. So, which I won't get to see for another two years. So, yay. Yeah. On video on demand, we have a bunch of stuff coming out. Well, Ain't Them Body Saints. Fantastic. We have Devil's Pass again. Oh, yes. Um, the Colony, which looks really bad. Jane, Jane Mansfield's Car, which is the Billy Bob Thornton one. Great cast. Great cast. <laughs> Automatic. Actually, Automatic. I actually saw that movie alone quite a while ago. Uh, single Shot. Pretty excited to see that. Right. Very excited for that one. A Teacher. Pretty excited to see that one as well. And finally, Veronica which I don't think I know too much about. So, really good week. I mean, that's like at least three solid movies coming out on VOD this week. DVD and Blu-ray releases. This is for August 20th, 2013. We have Amore, or a.k.a. the feel-good movie of the year. Oh, man. That took a long time for them to come out with that one, huh? Yeah, what what the hell is that all about? I wonder if it has added... um... Like animal killings, deleted scenes with uh, where where he kills the pigeon. Probably that's probably what took it so long. Uh, then we have epic. I didn't hear very good things about that. Killing <laughs> season, which I heard is really bad. No one lives, which I can say for a fact is really bad. That's the Kitamara directed oh. one. Very disappointing movie. In it's a very interesting concept, but it, it doesn't really work. It's poorly executed. Yeah. Rapture Palooza, which is a nightmare. Scary Movie 5, which I imagine is really bad. I think we actually have a review for that on the site. I think Ernie saw that. And finally, Shadow Dancer. Shadow Dancer. Which I don't think I know anything about that either. Shadow Dancer. I have to look up Scary Movie 5 real quick. I'm clicking on it, and now, of course, my computer's frozen. He gave it a two. two. Oh, uh, were you hoping it to be like a seven? <laughs> seven for it. That'd be funny. Uh, all right, Criterion's. Criterion's. All we have is a double bill of the great Indian director Shatojit Rai. He's uh, he's actually I have one of his films on my uh, film viewing resolution list, which I haven't gotten to yet, but. Apparently, he is regarded as one of the greatest auteurs of world cinema, and obviously one of the greatest Indian filmmakers ever. So there's two coming out for him, uh, 1963's The Big City and 1964's Charlotte. Well, there you have so it. So you got, you, you got two of those right there. I'm not a big fan of Indian cinema, honestly. What? I just don't like it. Sorry. I oh, I've seen... Uh, what this is why it's one of my film viewing resolutions. I've seen, I think, one, maybe two. That's it. I don't think I've seen any like old. Like, I yeah, I haven't stuff. seen any old classic stuff as well. So I'm gonna give it a shot. But I've, I've, I've if you haven't noticed, I've been putting it off for a while. Now. <laughs> I've watched one yeah. in like every other section, the Indian one. No, because the the problem for me, Indian cinema as a whole, is all of their films are like three plus hours. I, I just, just, I just can't don't. do that, man. Yeah. I do remember the guy that I work with. He, he's Indian, and he tells me that that's just how their films are. Like when you go to the movie theater, every film has a intermission. Hmm. At least that's what I was told, anyways. And you I know, you that... do like an hour and a half, and then you go for your like fifteen, twenty minute intermission, and then come back for the other hour and a half. And I also heard that it, over there, when they go see movies, it's not like here where everything's like silent. Like everybody talks and dances and like. 
is on their phones and stuff when you go see movies over there. I can I can imagine. Which would drive me crazy. I'd be like, all right, I'm I'm done. I'm out. <laughs> Forget this. Three <laughs> hours of this? You kidding me? Yeah, I'd be like, all right, screw it. Well, I think that that wraps it up. For all the latest film news and reviews, visit us at filmpulse.net. Send us an email at feedback at filmpulse.net. Follow us on Twitter at filmpulse.net. And be sure to rate us on iTunes. We appreciate that very much. For filmpulse.net, my name is Adam. And I'm Kevin. And we will see you on Thursday for Ryan Watches a Movie. Shatuji Rick Jesus Christ. Uh oh.